When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Sterling Moon. I'm a professional medium, diviner, and folk magician, and the author of Talking to Spirits, a modern medium's practical advice for spirit communication. And you're listening to The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you The Devil's Music. Hey there, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast. A little bit about me. I'm a punk rock witch from Hollywood, California. I've had a lifelong passion for rock and roll and the occult that started when I was a preteen. In the 70s, I was one of the first punks in L.A., and as a teenager, I worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go, started producing shows, and made a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to write for every major rock publication you could think of. In the 80s and the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've toured around the globe to teach and perform dance. You might have also seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. Look for me in the new Go-Go's documentary. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, go to my website, pleasantgaiman.com. I'm really excited to be part of the Pantheon Podcasts network of rock and roll shows. Everyone here at Pantheon tells stories about the music we just adore so much, each and every one with a different twist. Find them all wherever you listen to podcasts at Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. 
and head on over to PantheonPodcast.com to share a show with a friend. Or be damned to purgatory forever. Hello, everybody. It's been a little hot minute since I've made a new podcast, but you know, that's just how I roll. <laughs> I do a lot. Of <laughs> I'm really excited to um, have this guest on today because she is the leader of, or and the inventor of LA Woman Tours. She's a Hollywood historian, guerrilla style. And she's just an all-around fabulous gal. So we're going to be learning a lot about Hollywood and hearing crazy Hollywood stories from her and probably from me as well. Please welcome Elisa Jordan of LA Woman Tours. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hi. I'm so excited to have you because I can't wait to dish the dirt on people that died <laughs> before we were born. <laughs> Yeah, we can we can talk about them. They're not here to get mad at us. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, maybe their spirits will. <laughs> you know, now that you're a little yes. about it. You're a little more sensitive to that than I am, but now all of a sudden I'm worried about going to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I have to quote Linda Blair, your mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, already we're on a degenerate roll here. Um, okay, so um, before I get into some personal history about uh -huh. you, actually, I just want to say um, or ask you: Did did you name LA Woman Tours after the Doors song? I did. So when I was deciding that I wanted to start a tour company, it was because. I was writing about Marilyn Monroe online. I had two different columns on the internet. One, people wrote in and asked questions about her, and then I would answer them. And then another one, I was writing original content, and I was getting a lot of questions about her, and I realized people don't really know a lot about her. They think they do, but they don't. And it's not their fault, because the information out there a lot of times isn't very good. And I was thinking, well, I live right here. Why can't I just show people where she lived? Because she was born and raised here. So I thought, what if I put like a classroom on wheels kind of a thing and just do a tour? How hard can that be? You know? And not long after I decided to do that, I thought, well, I kind of know a lot about the doors. Maybe I could do a doors tour as well. So then I was thinking what can I name my tour company that would encompass both Marilyn Monroe and the doors? And nothing was coming to me. I was thinking at first bombshell tours, cause I was thinking, Oh, Marilyn's a bombshell, but that didn't really fit, fit the doors. And some people might think it was a world war II tour. I don't know. So nothing was coming to mind and I was having a terrible time. And then one day I was driving in my car, literally, 
and LA Woman came on the radio. And you know that feeling where it's kind of like the universe smacks you on the back of the head? It's really obvious that something is meant for you. And that yeah. song came on and I realized, oh, that's it. That's it. The Doors, L.A. Woman, and then Marilyn's an L.A. Woman because she was born and raised here. It's perfect. So that's how I got the tour name. That's amazing. So how long have you been doing the tours? I launched in 2012. I started working on it in 2011. It took me a while to get the tour routes together and get all the legal documents together and things like that. Don't you have to have like a chauffeur's license or something like that? Or Well, I don't drive the, the vans myself. I started hiring little buses and then I partnered with Dearly Departed Tours a, a little while later and he drove the vans for me. So that would be Scott Michaels from Dearly Departed. Do you remember that tour company? They're the ones who would drive. They had a hearse. Around. Didn't they have hearses and stuff? Well, originally it was um, Graveline Tours and Scott worked for them as the tour manager. And then he moved to England for a while. And that company went away. And he, when he came back to Los Angeles, he started a new version of it called Dearly Departed. And... Um, yeah, so he had a great tour. He's all online now, but he started with the classic tour where he would take you around and show you where um, people died. But he also had the Helter Skelter tour. He's one of the leading experts on um, the Manson family, the, the Manson family, and the murders. And he was a an, a technical advisor on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for Quentin Tarantino. Why don't and, you know? Him? I used to see the Graveline tourist thing driving all over the place. I I feel like I should know him. We should we should take a little break. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Okay, I'm back again with the Lisa of L.A. Woman Tours. <laughs> but he's one of my best friends, and um, he agreed to partner with me, so I was able to switch over to using his company, and it was a great partnership. And it's kind of a weird, in a roundabout way, um, it, it was like coming full circle, because when I was 16, going back to Graveline Tours, what I really wanted to do for my birthday, instead of having a party for my sweet 16, I wanted to go on Graveline tours. So me and my two best friends went on Graveline. And then all those years later, I end up, you know, running my own tours and working with the guy who ran that company and then, you know, had his own version of that company. So I'm um, I'm just so fascinated with, with the old Hollywood as uh-huh. And I feel like it's different when you're a resident of here, you know, mm-hmm. because because we can we can just every day be walking by somewhere where, you know, there was some wild scandal that happened in the 30s <laughs> or or where someone died or like I used to live down the street from one of the, you know, cheap hotels that that the Black Dahlia used to mm-hmm. live in, you know, and so. Like in in LA, for anyone that's listening, LA's got its own crazy energy, and it's not just like all the sun and fun. LA's really dark a lot of the time, as in mm-hmm. goth dark or scary dark. Not <laughs> yeah, and I feel like we really tapped into that in the '30s and '40s with the film noir movement. Yeah, and um, you know the books that were coming out and the movies that were coming out. We were really tuned into that, and I think we've gotten away from it. Yeah, it got it got too like candy sugar coated and family yeah. style there for a while. But um, so tell me, tell me, tell me. Um, I know that you don't really deal in scandal, but more in yeah. history. But like, what's your what's your favorite Hollywood scandals of old Hollywood? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's it can be hard to look at them through the 21st century lens. But, um, you know, Errol Flynn and his party pad is. Oh, yeah. I used, to, I used to go up and party there. You I'm did? Sorry. House was. Yeah. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Finish your schedule. Okay. Yeah. So for, for people who are listening, he would throw these raucous parties and. Um, you know, he had uh, two-way mirrors where guests would watch each other, you know, in intimate moments. And if he was with young girls, which we would now frown upon, but um, then he would go to Warner Brothers in the morning hungover or still drunk, and he got suspended from Warner Brothers. Um, he's He was quite a character. And there's a story, and I, I don't know if it's true, so I'm going to present this as anyway. gossip. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a story uh, at Warner Brothers where 
he needed to be suspended and he was such a big star that the only person who could suspend him was Jack Warner himself. So Jack Warner came down, suspended Errol Flynn and basically told him, you know, go home and think about what you've done, young man, kind of a thing. And instead, (laughs) Errol Flynn went out to uh, the tennis court that was just outside of Jack Warner's office window and started playing the game of tennis right in full view of Jack Warner. And I'm, I think that story is true. I can't say for sure it is, but it's definitely something he would do. And I absolutely love that story. That's one of my favorites. That's a great story. I used to, um, I was so obsessed with old Hollywood that even when I was, when I was a kid, I would read all these books about mm-hmm. Hollywood history. And some of them I'm sure were legit and some of them probably were not, uh-huh. but I was, I wasn't born and raised here. I came here when I was 15. So when I, mm-hmm. it was my dream to come here. And when, um, so I just started going wild, like looking, looking, trying to find addresses in like old books, tour books of where people mm-hmm. lived or where like, you know, like th- that wasn't Mabel Normand, the, the silent film star. Yeah. Kind of crazy murder scandal or something. I I would look up all of that stuff. Yeah. And, the and, Thomas Ince murder. Yes, Thomas Ince. He was wasn't he was a um a director, right? Yeah, and that that murder, by the way, is still unsolved. Wow. So is the Black Dahlia. Yeah. And nah. the, that was something else I did right when I moved here. I, I took the bus down to Limerick Park so I could see where her body was mm-hmm. because I'm not morbid or anything. <laughs> Well, you know, I have this the same thing. Um, when people ask me what I do, I I find myself saying things like that a lot. I'm I'm not morbid. I'm not a scary person, but I did this thing. <laughs> but it's it's just a curiosity. Like I want to see where it happened, and you know, a lot of history is not happy or positive. That doesn't make it not history or not worth studying. You have to just. If you can take a step back and look at it objectively, and we're human beings, we can't always look at things objectively, but if you can take a step back and think, okay, Elizabeth Short came to Los Angeles, this happened to her, it is still unsolved. Look at the impact it has had, not just on our city, but United States history. Books are written about her, movies were made about her, and people are still talking about her that's a pretty tremendous impact. And I just want to see the spot where it started. Yeah, that's, ex- that's exactly me. And I mean, also she was so beautiful. She was so mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful. And she had, she had the, um, you know, the classic tragic Hollywood story, even mm-hmm. before the murder, you know, you know what I mean? Like she was, she was just a movie hopeful. And that that's one of the things that I think is, the wildest part of the energy in Hollywood because so many people came at her with such high hopes and then either mm-hmm. just nothing happened to them and it was despair over that or like horrifying shit happened to them. Yeah, and and you have to, if you have any kind of heart, it's not, um, if you have any kind of heart, it's hard not to absorb that. You know, it 
it's hard not to feel sorry for someone like that because we all have hopes and dreams. We all relate to it in some way or another. It may not be coming to Hollywood and being a musician or an actor or a director, but we all want things out of life. And when we don't get it, sometimes it's crushing. And sometimes when we do get it, it's still crushing or it's not what we thought it would be. And it's just a very human thing when you really dig deep into people's lives. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it totally reminds you of the human condition mm -hmm. and something like this could happen to you or you start relating to someone because, you know, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. whether they were like a movie star or not. So, um, right. so when you, when you're doing the tour, is it, is it mostly focused on old Hollywood or was there also a lot of rock and roll stuff in here? Cause there's so much crazy rock and roll. History. I know. <laughs> Uh, I have four tours and um, one was Marilyn Monroe. That's where I started and the doors. And then I branched out. And I did Jean Harlow. And oh, I, love then her. I love her. And the more you learn about her, the more you will fall in love with her. She was just so cool. Such a person you would want to hang out with. Um, and then I had a separate rock and roll tour. And that, that was a lot of fun. And actually, I, I, um, when Scott and I would do the rock and roll tour for a while, his office was on Sunset Boulevard and your former apartment was the first stop on the rock it's and roll tour. Really? Yes. No fucking way. Oh my God. That's crazy. Because it was, it was right, right, right around, around the, the corner. corner. Yeah. So we would start off and I would say something like, well, Memphis has Graceland, but Los Angeles has Disgraceland. And then I would launch into the no history of Disgraceland. Oh, my God. And I would run down the list of the people who had stayed there. And um, I read a, a quote out of Belinda Carlisle's, uh, Belinda Carlisle's book because she had a really interesting paragraph about what it was like to live there. Yeah. And um, I thought it was so cool that it was just around the corner because you have to do the, the big spots when you do something like that, you have to do the whiskey go-go and the troubadour and all of that. But if for me, anyway, you have to dig into the stuff that maybe not everyone knows, but Disgraceland was a big part of Los Angeles rock and roll history at one point. And I wanted people to know about it. Thank you so much. You know, Disgraceland, Disgraceland, there was a story about Disgraceland when I was living there with um with um Iris Berry, who's now my book mm -hmm. publisher. But um there was so many people in and out of there all the time that were so famous that but mm -hmm. I knew lots of them before they were famous. Um but like now, now it's a language school. And so Iris and I started working <laughs> on a Disgraceland book. And somehow, I guess from Facebook or something, the guy that runs the language school said, wow, I just found out some history about um, the building where I'm in it and where, you know, where you used to live. And like, it was just like reading this in disbelief. And then he said, um, when the book comes out, we could have a book release party there. And <laughs> And just said, thank you for being so generous. But I don't want to say you may not know what you're getting into. <laughs> you're going to follow the in our 50s and 60s. Um, 
like, make sure you've got a good insurance policy. <laughs> so is it true that Mickey Hargitay was your landlord? Oh, yes, it is. Okay, speaking of Old Hollywood. Okay, so um, one of the one of the people that I was so obsessed with before I moved to Hollywood, and the reason I was blonde all through the 80s was Jane Mansfield. I just uh -huh. loved her. I loved her. And then um, the Sky Sun was originally um, founded by Kid Congo, uh, Kid mm -hmm. Congo Powers of, mm -hmm. you know, the the Cramps, the Gun Club. I'm just saying this for the audience. Hi, audience. The Cramps, the Gun Club, <laughs> Nick Cage and the Bad Seeds, Pink, uh, Kid Congo and the Pink Monkey Birds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Punk rock legend. Anyway, we had lived in another apartment in West Hollywood before it was, you know, so bougie like it is now. It was just, mm -hmm. you know, we lived in another Everything's bougie now. Yeah. But so, um, anyway, I, I decided that I was going to dye my hair blonde, right? This is this is the beginning of the whole crazy ass Jane Mansfield story. So uh -huh. I was going to dye my hair white blonde because I wanted to have like white blonde hair and my, my mm -hmm. eyes are almost black and my hair is black in real life. Um mm -hmm. not kind of the gray now. So I sat through all these like applications against um you know, my roommate who, who is a hairdresser against her, her better opinions. Like, you know, you don't want to bleach your hair this much in one day. And I'm like, bleach it, bleach it, bleach it. And so the whole bottom of it came out bright green because it was henna and it had a reaction. So then it wasn't a green that I wanted. It wasn't like crazy colored green. It looked like swamp thing. So I made yeah. it off. So I, so then I was happy because I could have really like Marilyn Monroe or Jane Mansfield style uh -huh. hair. Anyway, I took a bunch of acid that night as before I went out, as one does, or at least yeah. how I used to do. And so it was I'm a different time. Yes. <laughs> sitting on the porch in this giant, like emerald green 50s evening gown with my hair all white, sitting on a porch swing, waiting, waiting, you know, till the, you know, it was time to go out to clubs because I would always like arrive late. And at Disgrace Line, we never paid our rent on time, ever. And a lot of times there was big chunks of the rent missing. And I mean, it was, I don't even know how we lived there so long. We lived there for 10 years. Yeah. But I think a lot of it was because the manager at the time was a drunk. And like one time we left $200 <laughs> on the porch in cash, right? <laughs> so then we're like, let's go to the frolic room. And then we're like, no, we better save it for the rent. But so anyway, I was sit I was sitting on the porch in this crazy getup and white hair, and all of a sudden I heard footsteps coming up the porch because I, I was starting to fixate on these um, Mickey's Big Mouth broken bottles from the last party on the on the floor of the porch because they were exactly the same color as my evening gown, and that is like I mean that's like total LSD in operation, yeah. right? And so. Um, then then I sensed a present and I looked up and it was my landlord, Mickey Hargitay, who is Jane Mansfield's husband. And he never came to collect it. Usually mm -hmm. the manager did. And I was I was starting to flip out because I was really starting to trip. Like I didn't know if I could even construct <laughs> right? And then <laughs> is it really him? <laughs> yeah, it, no, I knew it was really him because of my Jane Mansfield obsession, but also I knew that like we didn't have the rent. And even if it was somewhere in my house, I was gonna be too high to find what drawer I shoved it in or something. And he never came to collect the rent. Only the manager did. 
So he stops dead in his tracks and we lock eyes and he said, excuse me, miss. Has anybody ever told you you look like Miss Jane Mansfield? And I'm sitting there thinking, what the fuck is the etiquette in a situation? dead movie star wife. I can hardly talk. And I just said, thank you. But in my head, it was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I'm impressed that you remember all that. It all ties in because Scott, who I keep talking about, owns the car Jane Mansfield died in. What? I really yeah. I didn't know this man. Yeah, it's in storage right now, but he How has did he it. Get it. Where did he get it from? Tell tell everyone that. Oh, well, he bought it. Someone someone owned it. And in LA? Uh, no. What's that? From LA? Did he have to like bring it? Because didn't she die in Mississippi? Yeah, it was on display at a museum for a long time. There was a guy, I think in Florida, who owned a bunch of tragic cars. He had the Bonnie and Clyde car. He had the I was Jane just going to ask car. you if he had the Bonnie and Clyde car. Wow. Yeah. Um, and eventually they were all sold off. And anyway, um, some guy ended up with it and it was in storage and, and Scott bought it and um i even helped work a yard sale he was selling a bunch of stuff uh from his collection so that he could buy the car and it was on display at the museum and i will say i know a lot of people didn't like that he displayed the car but let me tell you something about scott he adores jane mansfield and he absolutely loves her and i know it seems weird that he displayed the car but Everything he had in his museum was done with love because he and I have discussed this at length. There's an old saying, and it I, I think it goes back to the Egyptians, where a person dies twice. One is where you physically die, and the second time is the last time someone says your name. So he focuses on the people he loves and keeps their memory alive, and we both kind of felt... A kinship in that you know i was working really hard to keep marilyn monroe's name alive or at least keep her name positive or jim morrison or that kind of thing and and he was doing something similar and he absolutely adores jane mansfield yeah she was she was she was great um so what what do you know since since we are on the double uh -huh. what do you know about um do you know any good Good stories about um, Jane Mansfield and Anton LaVey. Well, I know that it's not what most people think. That was a publicity stunt. Those pictures were taken at her Pink Palace, which um, someone tore down and just I know, and got rid on of that the person's pool. soul. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Mickey, her husband, was the one who you know refurbished it for her and painted it pink and. Um, that photo shoot with Anton LaVey happened after she divorced Mickey. I think if Mickey had been in her life, that wouldn't have happened. But um, not long after that, Jane died. And that opened the door for Anton LaVey to invent the story that they had had an affair, which absolutely didn't happen. She wasn't a Satanist. 
it was just something she thought would be kind of a fun publicity thing. And it really backfired on her uh, after she died. But I will tell you like a personal thing. When I was in junior high, I was babysitting one night. And the first I heard of this story, you know, the kids were in bed. I mean, it has all the makings of like a spooky story or a movie. The kids were asleep and I was in the living room with the TV on flipping through one of those old tabloid magazines. And I read the story where Anton LaVey talks about um, he got in an argument with Jane Mansfield and her boyfriend at the time. And then, um, you know, he cuts the top of her head off. Yeah, he cuts the top of her head off in a picture, and then she's decapitated not long after that in the accident. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, that's terrible. You know, I'm, what, 12 at the time? But uh, it turns out he kind of made that up. He has a history of making things up. But also, she wasn't decapitated. She was scalped. Yeah, took the the top of her, you know, a lot of women back then wore what we would call a fall. Now women wear hair extensions. It's a similar concept. And it it took her wig off. And that's what landed in the street. Uh, Paparazzi took a photo of the wig in the street and it um, got written up that she was decapitated. Yeah, that was like New Biloxi, Mississippi or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Susie and the Banshees song describes what happened pretty well. Oh, yeah, we Kiss should them play for me. that. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll, definitely, we'll definitely play that for you guys sometime in this episode, maybe at this <laughs> Okay. So, um, yeah, that, that was a whole... Well, now that you're saying that it took place at the Pink Palace, that makes sense because whenever I would see those pictures of them together, it didn't look like what I thought that the Black House in San Francisco... That was oh, yeah. Place. Did you ever go there? No, I've been I've been by it, but I haven't been in it. Did you? I was, no, I went by it, but I never went in it. I was looking for it before there was an internet. So I just basically was walking around the hate Ashbury asking, and I finally found someone who knew where it was. And I um, went out to the front and took pictures of it. And a guy even um, came out of the house and saw me taking pictures of it. He didn't bother me. I don't know who it was. It wasn't Anton LaVey. I don't know what, but it's, it, it just goes back to that. You know, I just want to see, I, I just want to see that it, it really exists. It's there. Um, but yeah, I've made a lot of odd pilgrimages over the years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, me too. But you know what? I'm so glad that I did because now it's gone. It was torn down. Yeah. Hollywood, Hollywood and California in general is so, it's so, um, it's not like the East Coast or or other parts of the world where mm-hmm. they like preserve history. You know, there's like so many historic plaques. They mm-hmm. like to keep old buildings going on here. They just like raise things. You know, they just just get rid of them. Yeah. No I have a friend in Paris, and I've asked her. You know, what is it that they do in Paris that not only keeps the citizens interested in their history, but prevents the politicians from selling their history out because i think that's the bigger problem when i talk to regular people like us 
we seem to understand, you know, there is a, a commonality. Um, the buildings that we see or the environment, the parks or whatever, because we all know them, it creates um, a shared history for all of us. And that makes our community. And that's why it's so sad when we see these things come down. We always can't put it into words, but, you know, when that's gone, we lose a piece of ourselves and we lose our community. And it's not always us. It's the politicians, what I'm seeing. And I, gosh, it's so hard to talk about this without sounding pretentious or preachy. But when a building comes down and then you see a high rise of luxury apartments that no one in the neighborhood can afford, it's hard to wonder, not to wonder, like, what back door deal happened? Because you know that wasn't a straight up deal. You know, you know, someone got paid off. Yeah. And then I, my reaction to those, to those things is like, is like what people probably thought when, when we moved into this Graceland, um, uh -huh. we thought there goes the neighborhood, but that's, that's, that's what I think of when I see those ugly hipster boxes full of luxury apartments. Like, Here goes the fucking neighborhood. Did you ever get any neighbor complaints? Oh, constantly. <laughs> I mean, we always, we always did. <laughs> we used to, and it was even, it was worse because we lived at this case and we lived between the Blessed Sacrament Church, the gigantic <laughs> church that had a, a uh -huh. K through eight Catholic school. And then on the other side was Selma Elementary School. So we constantly <laughs> recess, which was punishing us for our hangovers. <laughs> And then I'm sure that the nuns that were there used to be nuns staying in dormitory. Uh -huh. the, the I don't know if they still are. They couldn't. Have, they must have been praying as hard as they could for us because it's not like we kept it quiet in there. Um, well, it worked. You're still here. Look yeah. At that. But, but there was that, like at the Graceland. This is this is what Hollywood was like for me, at least in the '70s and the '80s. That. One of the guys that lived upstairs from us, he, he was a pretty old man, but um, he was he was um, he was the animal trainer for all the early Tarzan movies. I mean, <gasps> stuff like that is total total Hollywood, you know. And then and then when he died, he got taken to the hospital for some extended illness, and he died. And I guess he didn't have any relatives, and so so like somebody was sent over to clean the apartment and I wish that we could have known when it was because I would have taken things out of it I mean not stolen them but like they were just throwing it yeah yeah it was weird and there was there was a pair of um of really old like 40s cowboy boots in a man size that had oh. hearts and spades and clubs and diamonds on them and then when I saw those I just started crying because that, that was such a jaunty thing to have on yeah. there. It was an animal trainer. And it was, I mean, that was so Hollywood to me, you know? Oh, that makes me sad that he had no one. Yeah. Yeah. That was well, I, I can tell you the first time I came to Hollywood, um, I was a kid and it was in the early eighties. And that's because, you know, I was watching Marilyn Monroe movies on TV and I learned that Hollywood was just a short freeway drive away. It's like, wait, this magical land where they make these movies is like here? Like we live here? 
mom, can we go? <laughs> so <laughs> there was one day during the summer, um, she took me and my older brother and his girlfriend at the time. And we met up with my aunt and uncle and my cousin. We had a day in Hollywood. And, you know, I saw Marilyn Monroe's star and her handprints in the uh, courtyard at the Chinese. And then toward the end of the day, there was a guy on Hollywood Boulevard selling studded belts. Because, you know, it was that era. Yeah. And my brother's girlfriend at the time went up to him and wanted to buy a black studded belt. So she gave him some money and he handed her a, a belt and she and my brother started to walk away. And very quickly she realized it was a dark gray belt and she wanted a black one. So they turned around and my brother said, oh, sorry, she wanted a black one. And he said, oh, okay. And he started kind of fumbling with, with the belts and went to hand her the, the black belt instead and it's just like out of the movies from under, he was wearing like a coat and from, and it's a coat in August, by the way. And from out of his coat, all these little white packets dropped and fell on the, the sidewalk. Cocaine? And my mother, I guess, I mean, I was a kid, but they were little white packets that fell. And wow. I remember my mother grabbing my arm and just marching me away from that as soon as she saw that. And that was my first experience in Hollywood. And here I am all these years later, still here. <laughs> <laughs> Did not scare me at all. <laughs> but I, you know, I was like, I was so young. It was more like, wow, what's that? That doesn't look good. But, you know. The worse it is, the more you want to know about it. Oh, I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one, one, time, one time I was at, a, at um, the bar, the Powerhouse, which is just off Hollywood Boulevard. It's like it's like a, on Highland in Hollywood or uh-huh. right around there. And this was when it was literally a bum bar. This was before any vacation <laughs> had gone on in Hollywood. There was none whatsoever. And I went there because I liked it because it was an old man bar. So I started, if I had friends visiting from out of town, I would take them. Was, this is the best bar ever. You're going to love it. You know, because there was just like lunatics in there all the time. Uh-huh. And so this, there was this really sinister looking older man. I mean, which I was pretty young then. Um, all, all also, they didn't car do, so I wasn't even legal drinking. <laughs> um, but so he... Um, <laughs> It was coming up and talking to me, going, hey, honey, can I buy you a drink? And, you know, and I was just letting him, right? And then uh, when he got closer to me, I saw that he had a pin on that said, <laughs> wait, what did it say? It was, it was like, it was like, um, oh, 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 the criminally insane get to have all the fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was what scared me from talking to him. Because <laughs> it wasn't like, this was like, kind of pre-punk rock no one was wearing a lot of buttons and badges and he just had this little tiny button on it really <laughs> close to and I was, I was just like nope <laughs> probably accurate at that moment yeah. that's what it felt really accurate <laughs> oh I gotta go now sorry <laughs> I took it as a warning. <laughs> um, let's um, let's 
let's have a little break again and we will talk about let's 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 review our favorite scandals or uh, either okay. of temporary or olden day Hollywood. Okay. Here I am back with Elisa of LA Woman Tours, and we're telling psychotic stories. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, what about? I know someone that used to live in Rudolph Valentino's house. I knew it was that was Falcon like Lair. No, not Falcon Lair, but I do have a Falcon Lair story. I mean, now that now that you were just talking about Anton Lavey, I'll tell you this mm-hmm. story. Okay. His grandson, Stanton LaVey, used to live next door to me for a long time. Is this time. in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah. It's in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Like, this is about maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. Okay. Anyway, he was working for Marilyn Manson at the time, and he would always come home complaining. And he would just, he would, he would c- complain to me about what it was like working for Marilyn Manson. Oh, but also... Um, he had this big, like, sort of infinity sign tattooed on his cap, and I asked him if it was in number eight, and mm-hmm. uh, he said he told me it was an infinity sign, and he said, "Why did you think it was in number eight? And I said, "He said because it doesn't really look like it." And I said, "I don't know. I'm into numerology, so I wound up doing his numerology." Mm-hmm. And then he said, "You do my grandfather's numerology?" And I said, "Yes." I gave him, um, you know, he gave me Anton Lavey's like real name which i'm forgetting now but i don't even know if it's it's public. howard it's howard levey but i think levey is spelled different isn't that yeah yeah something but, like that but his but it was interesting because anton levey's um n- name his real name and anton levey both of his numerology was a one which is a natural leader but mm. Yeah, that was interesting. So I digressed from the stand-in story. The stand-in story is one day he came home and he was all like, you know, bitching to me about Marilyn Manson and stuff. And then I was like, well, what happened today? Because he would always tell me like the craziest things. Uh (laughs) So um, he had, Marilyn Manson had a bunch of, he had a huge like Hitler and Nazi collection of stuff. As one does. Yes. Well, no, a lot of people do like collect that kind of Uh stuff, you know, but he had giant architectural pieces of Falcon's Lair, like like the real Falcon's Lair. But the reason that Stanton was bitching at me was because he had to coordinate with with a Chinese Feng Shui um, master who was coming to Feng Shui the Hitler stuff. I mean, wow. how could you? I don't think any amount of Feng Shui could fix that. No, no. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, um, 
for the people listening, um, Falcon Lair was torn down several years ago. Um, uh, an interior designer or something bought the property and it, it needed to be updated. But I remember going up and seeing it and it was completely gutted and torn down to the studs and then it was gone. So I don't exactly know what happened. Here, right? Falcons are here. Yeah, in in Benedict. Oh, well, he had it from. I mean, he had Stanton had it from. I mean, Marilyn Manson had it from the actual Hitler Falcons lair. Oh, oh, that Falcons lair. Oh, yeah, okay. the, yeah, the real <laughs> Falcons lair. That's oh, that's, I got confused. No, that's why I didn't think that like any feng shui would fix that. But tell us about no, the real. No, 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 Hollywood no. Falcons lair. No, no, no good vibes. No feng shui will will fix that. Um, <laughs> but no, there there was a Falcon's Lair in Benedict Canyon, and that's where Valentino lived. That or yeah. one of his houses um, before he died, and um, it was one of those legendary estates that everyone knows. And eventually, Doris Duke, the heiress, bought it and lived in it for a really long time. She passed away in it. Um, oddly enough, it was right across the canyon from the uh, house where Sharon Tate lived and where she died. And um, it, I think it was like a designer or something bought the house and was going to refurbish it and even bragged about it in Architectural Digest. And at some point, the house ended up getting torn down and I, for the life of me, cannot remember which issue of Architectural Digest it was or what the guy's name was, but I'm just so infuriated that that house came down. Um, and, you know, shame on that guy. Yeah. The, have you, not listeners, you might be interested in, t- in this too. There's a really great Instagram account that's been going on for some while, but I've only just discovered it. You probably know about it. It's mm-hmm. called Hollywood Before the 101. Yes, I love that Instagram account. So so what it is, why don't, why don't you explain to um, the audience what it what Who, is. Who's ever behind it, you know, picks out different places in Hollywood and does a deep dive into that piece of property and really goes in, into it. It's it's really amazing. Uh, this person kind of gets into the weeds, which I like. And, and scandals and like mm-hmm. all sorts. Of, yeah, it's just amazing. It's an, I stayed up all night looking at it. The mm-hmm. other night. Um, and then going back to Stanton LeVay, when um, I was in my youth and, and thinner, um, this one guy complimented me by telling me I looked like Zena LeVay. Oh wow! <laughs> I saw, I saw I saw photos of um when when Anton when I was a kid when Anton Lavey was it was either I think it was in Life magazine and I saw um Carla and Zena Lavey and that was mm-hmm. all I wanted to be like I mean this was when I was a really little kid mm-hmm. and I was already obsessed with witchy stuff back then but that like his daughters were so beautiful yeah and if you um. If you kind of have a propensity for goth looking like that, you know, I can see how that might happen. When I was a kid, I was really into Snow White, not just Snow White, but the Wicked Queen. I loved um, the way they looked. And actually, my first job was at Disneyland. Oh, really? Well, what were you doing there? 
Were you being Snow White or then what? No, nothing that cool. I worked in the restaurants, which um, at the time was Village House, which I think is um, Beauty and the Beast uh, now, and then Big Thunder Barbecue, which was torn out for Star Wars Land. Yeah, so you, so you've had, you've had such a your whole life has pr- pretty much been revolving around Hollywood. It seems like. I know. <laughs> I mean that that that's why I wanted to have you on here because mine does too, but not. I mean, I just know a lot of the weird history. I've never yeah stories or anything, but it's fascinating. You know, it's just well, you know, once I was old enough to to drive. Um, you know, this was before the internet, I would buy some of these old books where it tells you where to find things. And my Bible back then was, this is Hollywood. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers that book. It was really popular at the time. It was the only thing like it of its kind. And I would just kind of obsess in person. That's the only way I could describe it and just drive around and find all these different places. Um, you know, I wanted to see where Florence Lawrence died by eating ant paste or, you know, um, where, Bellas. what's that? Lupe Bellas, like, like, yes, that, with the ODs. And- mm-hmm. um, and a lot of it has been proven false, but a lot of it really was true. Um, you know, where Marie Prevost passed away, she was not eaten by her dogs, but she did have bite marks on her because, you know, the dogs were, were trying to, you know, revive her or wake her up. Um, Kenneth Anger is the one who um, really sullied a lot of reputations. I know yeah. he's the one who came up with that terrible story about Clara Bow. Uh, have you you've heard, heard it, that let, one? Let's take a break and then we'll, we'll talk and hear about Clara Bow. Okay. Mary Bravas did not look her best The day the cops bust into a lonely nest In the cheap hotel up on Hollywood West July 29 She'd been lying there for two or three weeks The neighbors said they never heard squeak For hungry eyes that could not Said even little doggies have got to eat She was a winner That became the doggiest dinner Okay, here we are back again. And um, so we're going to hear, so Clara Bow, for anyone that doesn't, isn't familiar with her, she was a silent film star and she was, she was really super beautiful. She was, she was gorgeous. So tell us, tell us her scandal. Well, the scandal was, um, she liked to attend USC football games. And that part is true. The scandal part is that she would invite the football players over to her home in Beverly Hills and have orgies. Like she would take on the entire team. That's what, what Kenneth Anger published in his book, Hollywood Babylon. Well, we now know that's not true. She did like to go to football games, but that that story wasn't true. Um, and by the way, that house was just torn down a few years ago, too, which is such a bummer. But um, 
when that book came out, her sons wanted to sue because it wasn't true. And the thing about libel laws is you can't libel a dead person, which is why when someone dies, all these stories come out because you it's kind of a free-for-all. You can say whatever you want. That's how Kenneth Anger got away with publishing all those stories, like Marie Prevost's dogs ate her. Um, Clara Bow, you know, took on the whole um, team. Or um, Lupe Velez. Okay, Okay, so tell the, me about Lupe Velez. Lupe Velez, the story is she committed suicide because um, she wanted, she was upset because, you know, Gary Cooper dumped her or something, and she, she may or may not have been pregnant. But before she died, she wanted to have this big Mexican uh, dinner, and then she took a bunch of sleeping pills, and... That caused her to get sick. She ran into the bathroom and threw up and her head was in the toilet. And that's how they found her with her head in the toilet. And what an embarrassing way to go, basically, is the story. And that story is not true. So a lot of the Hollywood scandals that we um, think about, you know, the, the Hollywood scandals we know and love, a lot of them are not true. They make great stories, but... There's just no proof of them. Yeah. I mean, unless you could find coroner's records and figure out. I mean, I kind of, I kind mm-hmm. of Hollywood Babylon with, um, cause Kenneth Anger was so bitchy when he was in the way he wrote stuff. And the, when the first, I think the first <laughs> came out in 1975. So I was like uh-huh. either 15 or 16. And I was lapping mm-hmm. that shit up with a spoon. All of um, us were, we yeah. all were, and there was no internet to disprove any of it. So we all believed a lot of that stuff forever. Um, another story was about Jean Harlow and that, um, you know, her husband, Paul Byrne, uh, may or may yeah. not have committed suicide. And the story was that he was, you know, impotent or um, his manhood was too small and he couldn't pleasure her. Um and as far as I know, that's not true either. Um, but, you know, um, she was involved with the gangster Johnny Stompanato, right? That's Lana Turner. Oh, Lana Turner. Yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and that, unfortunately, that is true. Um, for those no, who I are know, listening. I know that. Yeah, t- <laughs> tell that. Oh, well, I'm telling the audience, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Lana Turner was involved with the gangster Johnny Stampanato, who was an enforcer for Mickey Cohen, who was one of L.A.'s gangsters, and he was physically abusive to Lana. She had just moved into a a new house in Beverly Hills. And Cheryl, her 14-year-old daughter, could hear them arguing. And what he told Lana was, if... um, if a man works with his hands, I'll cut off his hands. You work with your face and I'll cut up your face or something to that effect. And then I'll get your mother and your daughter too. What that terrified Cheryl. So she ran into the kitchen. Everything was in boxes because they weren't done unpacking. She grabbed a knife. It happened to be upside down. So she wasn't really thinking. She ran up to the door 
And um, he opened the door to leave Lana's bedroom. And when he walked out, she kind of lifted the knife and he basically walked onto the knife. And he said, my God, Cheryl, what have you done? And the story is that Lana got her daughter to take the rap for her. A lot of people believe that. I actually don't believe that. Lana's been gone for a really long time. She's been gone since 1995. Cheryl could absolutely come out now and say, you know what? My mom did it. She made me take the rap. I was 14 years old. But the evidence doesn't support that. And her story has never changed. She always describes it the exact same way. Uh, that was in 58, I think. So the late 50s, the stories never changed. The evidence supported what she said. Um, I remember taking one Hollywood tour because um, I've taken a lot of them just because I used to enjoy it, but also just to see what other tours are saying. And I remember one tour guide said, you know, she stabbed him like 14 times. It's, it was, it was one stab wound. Uh, it was a good one. It killed him. But, um, you know, I, I feel bad for her because she really kind of lost control of her life after that. She ended up running away several times. She was in reform school. Um, she was a lesbian, which wasn't well understood at the time when she came out to Lana to Lana's credit, she was really supportive, but I think, you know, liking women was the least of Cheryl's issues. Lana was like, fine, like women, just get your life together. <laughs> but, um, I think when you kill someone, even if it's ruled justifiable homicide, you're going to have a lot of guilt and that's going to weigh heavily on your psyche. And I, I think you really see that in Cheryl. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I, I remember hearing that, that story over and over and in mm -hmm. Hollywood Babylon and stuff, but also this is going to be really crazy. We used to, in the seventies, pre-punk rock, me and a few other people that were really rock and rolly, not the way mm -hmm. everyone was in high school. We used to go to my friend Cindy's house and just smoke so much pot, like, <laughs> I I haven't smoked pot in decades because I just can't, you know, like uh -huh. I mean I'm not opposed to it, but I used to I used to smoke weed like nonstop. And so I was looking around her house and I was like, this house is so beautiful. Like, how long have you guys lived in it? And they hadn't lived in it that long, but that was it was the where we used to get high was the room. Where Cheryl <gasps> killed Johnny Stump and Otto. And and I when I found that out, I was like super high and I was screaming, What? Because this was like right when Hollywood Babylon had come out. Then I had only just moved to Hollywood and I was like, Oh, did that freak you out? Yes. <laughs> been in a murder room, let alone like a famous murder room, you know. I worry about that house coming down. Last time I checked, it was still there. That that neighborhood that it's in in Beverly Hills is 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 nice and residential, and I think a lot of the people have owned their properties for a long time. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's not it's not like areas of Hollywood or other parts of LA where um you know like a landlord owns like old craftsman houses that have mm -hmm. been turned into apartments, and then they just find out how much money they can make and they sell it. And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I yeah, kind of, I think it's 
it would happen that easily where that house is located. Yeah, one of the things that I love about Los Angeles, and I don't know if people realize or not, is we have amazing architecture here because of all the influx of the creatives coming here in the 19 teens and the 20s and 30s. That includes a lot of uh, craftspeople, a lot of um, architects who are at the top of their game. And because it was a newer city and it was booming, it was uh, also a creative city. We just had the best architecture architecture and that's why it's so sad for me to see it come down and architecture was really fresh and exciting in the 1920s anyway because a yeah. lot of soldiers were coming home from world war one after seeing european architecture and they were replicating it here so it kind of lends itself to hollywood because we have so many you know french chateaus and castles and tudor style mansions and yeah. it, it lends itself to the magical um, element, even though we, we've talked about the dark side, but that's kind of the, the fun and the irony of it. Well, like the Charlie, like the Charlie Chaplin, the two different Charlie Chaplin, like little bungalow courts that all look uh -huh. like beautiful Tudor houses, uh -huh. like Tudor houses with peaky roofs. And then mm -hmm. also on the way to Burbank airport, I'm forgetting what street it is, but there's a whole line of those kind of houses. They just, they're, mm -hmm. They're fairy tale houses, which yeah. is a big architectural trend because they actually really look like fairy yeah. tale houses. Okay, what's what what's one last doozy or string of doozies we can talk about? Well, you know, Marilyn is a, a subject close to my heart, and I kind of wanted to talk about her death because the rumors around her death really bother me. Um, you know, there are all kinds of rumors that the Kennedys murdered her and she, you know, she was given a shot to kill her or she was given an enema to kill her. And then just today on Instagram, a friend of mine sent me a reel where someone said her body disappeared for six hours. And it's like, oh my God, it just keeps getting worse. And the reality is a lot, it's sad, but it's a lot more mundane. She she overdosed on prescription medication. A lot of Hollywood stars were put on pills by their doctors at the time. And she overdosed. She slipped away. And you can tell by looking at her blood work that it was a slow shutdown. Um, her stomach is empty. There, there are no pills in it, which all that means is she was a habitual user. If your stomach is used to digesting a lot of pills... It has the ability to. And then her blood work reveals um, that she had no alcohol and the liver levels reveal that it was significant. The drug levels were significantly higher in her liver than the blood, which means there was time enough for the drugs to cycle through her liver twice. Your liver is your body's cleaner. So everything goes through your liver twice. And um, that's kind of like if you're an alcoholic, you know, you have a damaged liver. Same, yeah. same <laughs> principle. Um, that means it was a slow shutdown. It wasn't a fast death. So if she had been given a hot shot of some time of some sort, her body would have shut down fast. But um, she kind of just slowly slipped away. And 
the evidence pretty clearly supports that. Her stomach was empty, but that wasn't a big deal. It doesn't point to anything. Um, and I think especially with that movie Blonde that came out earlier this year, which was just yeah, absolutely I didn't, I didn't horrible. Don't watch it. It's three hours of your life. You will never get back. I mean, I would rather you just stare into the sun and risk going blind than watch that movie. It is so bad. It's not even well written. I mean, if it were at least interesting to watch, I'd, I'd say, okay, just watch it because it's entertaining. It's not even entertaining. It's just Marilyn going from one scene to another crying. <laughs> wow. Okay, I'm glad I didn't miss anything with that. Um, but what, like, what do you know about um, her affairs with Jack and Bobby Kennedy? Or what do you think of that? There's actually no evidence of having affairs with either one of them. Really? She, she, yeah, she, she had met them because she was friends with Peter Lawford, who was married to Pat Kennedy, their sister, and. Um, and she's saying there happy birthday. There are only a few known. She did. She had met them. Um, it, she may have met them at the beach house where the Lawfords lived. That house still stands. And I'm I'm not exactly sure because there were people coming out in and out that day. But it was a busy home. I mean, there was no way they were alone together. There was. Um, a weekend at Bing Crosby's house in Palm Springs. And the president stayed there for the weekend. Marilyn was also there that weekend, but I, I'm not a hundred percent sure if she stayed the weekend there. She may or may not have, but she went up on a Friday, Saturday, there was a, a barbecue of some sort. You can follow the president's schedule. Um, he had a lot of meetings in, Palm Springs and his official schedule tells you exactly where he was at any given time that weekend. And then there's a chunk of time in the evening that Saturday for a barbecue at Bing Crosby's Maryland attended that. And then on Sunday he had, he had meetings, he attended mass and he left to go home. Maryland spent Sunday with Joe DiMaggio and her friend, um, Norman Roston. So and then she's saying happy birthday to him. So there are very few times where you can put them in the same room at the same time. His schedule is public. Her schedule is pretty public. And it's very hard to get them in the same room at the same time. Wow, that's that's pretty and interesting. I know people, yeah, people sometimes um, don't believe me, but um, that's what the evidence suggests. And she met Bobby a few times, but... There's really no evidence to suggest that they were more than you know casual acquaintances. Okay. I'm now I mean, let's I'm I reserve okay. the right to, you know, yeah, I reserve the right to if evidence comes out on the contrary, I'll change my tune. But as of right now, that's what the evidence points to. Yeah, because I mean to me that just seems so wild that you're you're like having uh -huh. a wild with the president and the attorney general. <laughs> I, mean, I know. <laughs> Well, you know, I read the account of um, an, a secret 
no, an FBI agent from the 70s. He wrote his memoirs in the 70s, and he said, um, you know, they were always trying to catch Bobby Kennedy doing something because um, Hoover was always out to to dig up dirt on everyone, especially the Kennedys, but everyone. And he said, we could never get anything on Bobby Kennedy. He was almost a Puritan. Wow. And interestingly enough, a Secret Service agent who worked for President Kennedy, he's still alive. He's written a couple books. Uh, a TMZ reporter, of all people, asked him about you know, did you ever see Marilyn Monroe? And he said, no, I never saw her. And I was there all the time. He's the the guy, his name is Clint Hill. He's the guy who jumps on the back of the presidential limousine when JFK was shot. Right. So do you remember that footage? There's a secret of service course. agent yeah, who jumps on the back of the limo. It's a, it's a yeah, food. that's yeah. him. And he's like, I never saw her. Wow. Wow. This has been really, really fabulous um, talking talking to you about all these old, old things. I hope you guys listening enjoyed it. Um, so anyway, you can you I will put all of her social media on the episode description, and you guys will get to look up more of what Elise does and what what she has done, and she'll probably have some good old Hollywood scandal stuff for you to read on the socials. Anyway, thank you so much for being on The Devil's Music. This was a pretty thank you devil. For having thing. me. That was great. Okay. Thank you. See you guys all next time. Or hear you all next time or you'll hear me. Bye. And I saw the cool in a gang show. This one The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 